Father in heaven, uh, as we gather week by week, um, we read the Bible and we hear of remarkable things, of great power, great miracles, things that are sometimes uh, so far from our experience that, that they're, they're hard to kind of grasp and get our mind around. And, and then there are uh, teachings and ideas that sometimes are very, very familiar, and that makes it hard to grasp and get our minds around. And, and sometimes they're very, very unfamiliar, and that makes it hard too. Thank you that one of the wonderful claims you make is that you're a God who speaks and makes yourself clear to us today uh, through these words. So will you do that? Will you clarify yourself? Will you grant us uh, to hear, to see what is, what is the truth about who you are, about who we are, um, and then show us uh, what the response is in our particular situation? So uh, please, will you do that? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, everybody, um, keep your eyes, please, on that first reading uh, that we had. It's on page nine. Um, as Clint was saying at the beginning of the service, we're in Lent. And uh, one of the big words in Lent that we started the service with is repent, repentance, turning, turning from one thing, turning uh, to God. Um, uh, but in our reading today, we actually hear Jesus describing the aspect or, or the more of the details of repentance, and he uses words uh, that I think are, are, are very, very provocative uh, because they're so demanding. Take, let me show you what I mean. Uh, take a look at the first reading uh, right in the middle of it. Verse 23, Jesus says this, and Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, how does that strike you? Um, I could imagine somebody, I could imagine somebody uh, who's used to that word, who's heard it a lot, and, and I could imagine it just kind of completely deflecting because it seems conventional. But on the other hand, I could imagine somebody reading Jesus, taking him seriously, and concluding that what he's saying right here is exclusive and gruesome and dangerous. Here's why. I can imagine somebody saying, um, this is exclusive, because the last thing Jesus says right there is, follow me. And, and when he says, follow me, he means, follow me. Jesus is saying, follow me in a way that you don't follow anyone else, in a way that's deeply uh, and importantly exclusive. And you might think of it like this. He's saying, um, uh, uh, follow me with love and allegiance at such a level that following me trumps your love and allegiances to anyone else or to anything else. It's, he's saying, um, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be a supplement in your life. I'm, I'm going to be uh, the focus of your life if you want to follow me. And I can imagine somebody hearing that and saying, boy, that sounds really exclusive. And, and in a deep way, they're right. 
And then I can also imagine somebody looking at this and saying, not only is it exclusive, it's gruesome. Why is it gruesome? Well, because it talks about the cross, taking up our cross daily. Now, here's the thing, Emmanuel. When Jesus said this, nobody wore crosses as jewelry. Um, uh, you know, this was not a symbol uh, for uh, humanitarian relief organizations, right? Uh, this was a device uh, of torture that was so gruesome and brutal that Romans themselves, first of all, if you're a Roman citizen, you could never be crucified. And secondly, even Romans themselves who did this a lot didn't like to talk about it in print. And now Jesus says, all right, if you're going to follow me, every single day you need to take up this brutal torture device and it's going to be fundamental to who you are. I mean, does that sound gruesome? And then I can imagine somebody saying, well, not only is it exclusive, not only is it gruesome, it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because Jesus says he leads with deny yourself. And when he, Jesus says deny yourself, he's not talking about like giving up soy lattes for Lent. Okay? Um, you may be doing that, and I, I'm not commenting, but um, <laughs> that's not what this is about, okay? Uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's talking about something like this. Evaluate your life, find your deepest allegiances, and then decenter those deepest allegiances and in their place, center Jesus. I mean... And I can hear somebody saying, um, listen, that is dangerous. I, I can imagine somebody saying, listen, I think I'm all for being spiritual, um, especially if being spiritual helps you kind of find yourself and, and, and lead you on your own path. But this is, but if you're going to deny yourself, you're denying, you're, it's, de it's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. Okay. Can you see those objections? Can you recognize them? And friends, if you're um, evaluating Christianity, uh, or if you are a, a committed follower of Jesus and you want to follow him more, then it's really important in either situation that we learn to take these sayings of Jesus very, very seriously. Um, because to do anything else is dishonest and hypocritical. And so this is my question today. How can it possibly be a good thing for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. How can that possibly be good? And uh, I want to show you three reasons. Here's the first one. The first reason why denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus is a good thing is this. The self cannot bear the weight that we demand of it. Let me explain what I mean. Um, so Jesus says, if you're going to be one of my followers, you need to deny yourself. Now, what's going on there? It's important that we realize that in this original context, Jesus is speaking into a culture that was far less individualistic than we are and far more community-oriented. So it was more focused on your family. It's more focused on your tribe. It was more focused on your community. And in this culture, uh, you would get your identity, something like yourself, uh, from the family that you were born into, the uh, religious context that you were born into, the tribe that you were born into, uh, the political system under which you were born. 
And your allegiance to those communities are the things that gave you identity and security. They told you who you were. And in that context, Jesus is saying, okay, friends, if you're going to follow me, uh, then you need to, in a you need to take those allegiances and you're going to have to decenter them. It doesn't mean that they no longer exist, but it means that they're not in the center of who you are anymore. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to start looking to me for your identity and your security. And that's why um, a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, in the same work, and some of us have, who are reading the Gospel of Luke right now in our Lent readings, are you reading your Lent readings? Go team. Um, the, it, it, you'll notice that Jesus has very hard things to say for people who prefer family relationships uh, over himself or, or tribe over him or, or even political affiliations over him. Jesus has very hard things to say for them. However, I think for us today, the idea of denying self takes on a little, it lands a little bit differently for us. And here's why. Uh, we are about two or three hundred years, well, more like three hundred, maybe four hundred years into a massive shift in, um, in culture and, and in the history of philosophy. Um, now, this isn't going to turn into a, a philosophy lecture, but remember that we are all of us here children of the Enlightenment in one way or the other. And what I mean by that is that starting around 400, 500 years ago and really getting steam 300 and 200 years ago, um, there was a whole school of philosophy or actually many schools of philosophy, people like Descartes and Kant and in a different way Rousseau and many, many, many others who began to uh, push back against uh, things like uh, traditional authorities, uh, institutional authorities, authorities outside the individual. And in each philosopher in different ways, they began to emphasize that each, that the uh, individual human was rationally competent, especially an educated one, was rationally competent to uh, reflect on life uh, observe truth, draw conclusions, and figure out how to lead your own life. And this was kind of the idea that we often call autonomy. Um, in a really simplistic way, it's I trust me, especially my rational deliberations, to figure out the truth around me and the best way to live my own life. Uh, and originally, we, everybody thought that everybody would come to the same uh, conclusions on how to live and that we would all agree that way. But then, but then, over time, especially in the last 200 years, it's really gained steam. Uh, not only did we center the individual and our rationality, but we began to center the individual in terms of our feelings and our desires. And sometimes philosophers call this the concept of authenticity. So the word authenticity means lots of different things in different contexts. Sometimes it just means I'm being genuine and sincere. Uh, but it can also take on a bigger uh, uh, payload. This is one, the way one scholar puts it. Authenticity goes beyond autonomy by holding that an individual's feelings and deepest desires can outweigh the outcome of rational deliberation in making decisions. And you see, did, did you hear that? 
the individual's feelings and deepest desires can outweigh the outcome of rational deliberation and making choices. And so the idea is that not only uh, do we rationally think through things, but also we need to discover something that oftentimes, not always, but we call the self. S our deepest desires, uh, there's something in me, I need to discover that, and I need to be loyal to that, and that's going to lead me uh, as I uh, make my big decisions in life. And the implication is often, often unsaid, but often, often there, subtly, uh, that my path to flourishing is going to include finding myself. And often by myself, uh, I mean my, my deepest, my strongest desires uh, and how I interpret those. Now, can you recognize that line of thinking? It's a very powerful line of thought. And it's so pervasive that many of us uh, will live in that world and think that way without ever articulating it. And that's one of the reasons why when we hear Jesus saying, you're going to have to deny yourself, it can strike us as deeply threatening. Now, why would he say that we need to deny our very self? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus says, for or because whoever would save his life will lose it. Wait, what? But whoever loses his life for my sake will end up saving it. Now focus on that first line, whoever would save his life will lose it. What does that mean? Well, here's the way one, uh, this is actually a, an atheist thinker, puts it. It's a man called Yuval Harari, um, and he summarizes the idea of authenticity, and then he points out a problem. Just listen to this. Uh, Many of us believe that if I really pay attention and strive to get in touch with myself, I'm bound to discover deep inside a single, clear, and authentic voice which is my true self, and which is the source of all meaning and authority in the universe. However, argues Harari, over the last few decades, the life sciences have reached the conclusion that this story is pure mythology. If I look really deep within myself, the seeming unity that I take for granted dissolves into a cacophony of conflicting voices, none of which is my true self. Do you see what, he said, what, he's, what he's arguing there is that um, the deeper we go in the pursuit of the self, especially looking at our deepest desires and so on and so forth and the voices that are within us, um, we expect to find something robust and consistent, but what we find is a cacophony of conflicting voices. It's like we grasp water, but it slips through our fingers. Now let me say it differently. The more I try to discover me, by delving deeper within me, the less of a coherent thing called me do I end up finding. Or the more I try to find myself, the less of myself I discover. Or the more authentic I am to me, the less of me there is to be authentic to. That's the problem. Or in the words of Jesus, the more I try to save my life, the more I try to save myself, the more I end up losing myself, the more it just kind of slips through my fingers and I'm left with nothing but the grinding anxiety that seems to be pervasive in the modern world. You try to save yourself and you end up losing yourself. And many of us are feeling it now. 
And one of the things that that means is that when Jesus tells us that we need to deny ourselves, uh, decenter the self, he's not being dangerous and he's not being cruel, he's being kind. And he's being kind because the self cannot bear the weight we try to place on it. We need something better than the self, something more robust than, than the self to rest upon in order to lead to our flourishing. So the first reason it's a good thing that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, is that the self cannot bear the weight that we try to place on it. And, it, and all, a lot of us are feeling the trouble with that. But then the second one is this, that the cross is the unexpected path of liberation. Take a look now at the second paragraph, or the last paragraph in the first reading. Um, this is a really crazy scene. It's often called the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they go up on a mountain to pray. And while they're praying, uh, Jesus, well, he changes. He gets transfigured. Um, he becomes really, really shiny. And then uh, the disciples, as they're watching, they realize that there's two other people talking with Jesus. And it ends up that they're Two people from the Old Testament, uh, Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for a long time, but they're there. They're talking to Jesus. It's as weird as it sounds. What's going on? Way more than we can talk about right now, okay? But take a look right in the middle at verse 31. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're talking to each other. Now, whatever you make of that, that is an all-star cast from the Bible. If, you're, if, you've been, uh, if your imagine's been, imagination's been fired by the Bible, then, I mean, it doesn't get better than this group, right? What do you think they would be talking about? What do you think they'd be talking about? Well, what are they talking about? Look at verse 31. They're talking about Jesus' departure. Everybody say, Departure. And in this context, they're clearly, what they mean by departure is they mean Jesus, what Jesus is about ready to do in Jerusalem, namely, he's going to die and he's going to rise again. But the word departure in the original, it's the word exodus. Never heard that word before? Now it just means departure, but it doesn't just mean departure. Exodus is the Old Testament story of liberation. You remember the story? This is the second book in the Bible. Uh, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and when they're enslaved in Egypt, their deep identity is that they are slaves. But then, unexpectedly, they weren't looking for this. Unexpectedly, God breaks in on their story, and he liberates them from Egypt. Um, you remember God, through a guy called Moses, uh, leads Israel on an exodus. They escape uh, Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They escape on the other side. The Red Sea closes back on the Egyptian army, and the Egyptian army is, uh, is defeated and is killed. And what happens is that that experience of liberation transforms Israel's identity. Before this point, their main story is, we're enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. From that point onward, after the Exodus, their new identity is, we're the people that were liberated from Egypt by God himself. 
Their old identity of slave was eclipsed by a new identity of we belong to the God who liberated us from Egypt. And that new identity bound them to God in a bond of love that transformed everything. Now, that's the great story of liberation in the Old Testament. However, there's a problem. And the problem is that as the story of Israel unfolds in the Old Testament, it ends up becoming quite clear that Israel is suffering from a different kind of bondage. And you can see this, for instance, in the stories of Elijah. Uh, Elijah is a prophet who many hundreds of years after Moses, he goes around Israel and he calls out Israel's sin, their, their, their corruption and their injustice and their evil. And what had happened is Israel habitually decentered their relationship and bond of love with God, and they centered any number of other things, and that led them into corruption and injustice and evil and sin. And by the end of the Old Testament, it becomes clear that what Israel needs is another exodus. Not just another liberation from Egypt, but a liberation from their own bondage to evil and to sin, to corruption and injustice. Now keep that in your mind and go back to the conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. That explains, when they talk about Jesus' death, why they call it an exodus. It's a new exodus. But it's a different exodus. Because in the first exodus, God kills the enemies of Israel. God kills the Egyptian army and defeats them in order to achieve liberation. But in this new exodus, God himself becomes human in Jesus, and he volunteers to be the one killed so that the enemies can be redeemed and liberated and reconciled. God in Christ uh, takes the place of his enemies, in a sense gets drowned in the Red Sea, except it happens up upon a brutal cross so that he can achieve reconciliation with his enemies. Now, the point is this. The cross of Jesus Christ becomes the unexpected gateway of liberation. It's God's gateway for us to be liberated from the evil that enslaves us. And that explains why Jesus in our readings is so adamant that he's got to suffer and die and rise again in Jerusalem. He says it in both our readings. I wonder if you, mentioned, if you noticed it. Uh, Jesus didn't come just as a teacher. He didn't come just as a prophet. He came as a liberator, and he came as one to give himself in sacrifice. But this also explains something very, very sober. It explains why in verse 25... Jesus gives us such a sober warning. Take a look at verse 25. He says, What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father. Now, does that sound harsh? Here's, here's part of the point. Jesus came to liberate us from all that enslaves us, all that can kill us forever. And he gave all that he is for us. He denied himself. He took up his cross, uh, and he followed God's plan so that he could liberate us and reconcile us. But he also says that if we don't want that, if we reject that, Jesus is saying he'll honor that decision. 
He's saying he'll ratify our rejection. But the problem is that as he ratifies our rejection, even if we gain everything we're searching for in this life, in the end, we will find that we have nothing that really lasts forever. In fact, we won't even have the self that we spent all our lives trying to find. So why does Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Well, first, because the self cannot bear the weight that we place on it. But secondly, there's a gate of liberation. It's the cross. And it, re and it allows us to have a stronger foundation than the self will ever give us. But then finally, the, th the third reason that it's a good thing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus is simply because Jesus isn't like anyone else. He's utterly unique. Look at the top of the reading, the first reading. Uh, Jesus is praying, he turns to his disciples, and he, and he finally asks the question. What I mean by that is that this is the question that's kind of been hanging over everything Jesus has been doing. He's been doing all these remarkable things, miracles, stuff like that. But the question that hangs over everything is, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Because he's not acting like a normal rabbi. He's clearly more than just an innovative religious thought leader. He's utterly unique. And everybody can say that he's unique, but nobody can quite pinpoint what it is that he is. Who is he? And so Jesus finally asks the question, who is it that people say that I am? And the disciples give him the polling data. Uh, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say somebody else. And then Jesus says, no, 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 come on, guys. Make eye contact with me now. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question, Emmanuel. It's the fundamental question underneath all the other questions of the spiritual life and of all of your life. And many of us, especially if you've grown up in church, you know the right answer. You know, the, what, you know what you're supposed to say. You know what, what Peter says. Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the King of Israel. Um, but here's the deal, team. For some of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, the very familiarity we have with Jesus and the right answers can be a way that we evade the force of the reality. What I mean is, you can officially affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, but you can quarantine that idea in one part of your life and treat him a little bit like a thought leader. You, you take a little here, you leave a little there, um, and you can skillfully avoid losing your life to him. And if you're not yet a Christian, um, you know, I, I, we don't want to be coy about all this. Uh, everything in this reading and in all of the teachings of Jesus press a bold claim. And the bold claim is that Jesus is how God breaks into your life. And when Peter says Jesus is the Christ, he means that Jesus is the unique king that God has given, the unique authority. And at the end of the reading, on the mountain, God speaks, and God's not subtle here. He says, this is my son, listen to him, he's my chosen one. And the minute he says that, uh, Moses and Elijah disappear from view, and all we have is we're just looking at Jesus alone. 
Now, what does this have to do with anything? Here, here's the deal. When Jesus says, follow me, it's, it's exclusive. And it's exclusive because Jesus is so remarkably unique. And the crucial question, Emmanuel, is what is it that you make of that audacious claim and what are you prepared to do about it? And if you feel that that question begins to press upon you, I want you to consider, and I'm speaking equally to those of you who consider yourselves Christian, those of us who are not sure any of this is a good idea, if you feel the force of the question, who is Jesus, then you need to consider both the cost and you need to consider the joy. Consider the cost, because what Jesus is asking you to do is to set aside fundamental allegiance to self. And that is a remarkably costly demand. Because all of us want to find fulfillment by looking within in one way or another. We want to depend upon our competence. We want to find uh, and fulfill the desires that are raging and that are in us at all times. And, but the thing is that we've got to remember is that the self will never really finally deliver for us. And it's frightening to set the self to the side. But we have to remember that we're only giving that up. We're only giving up something that can never really deliver. And Jesus promises to give us himself. And in giving us himself, he will recreate our whole being and make us new. And we will, in the end, not regret the decentering of the self. But of course, at the same time, Jesus asks us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, when that means at least this. It means that just like Jesus' path to glory went through suffering, so we must consent that his path will become our path. The Christian life is not a path of comfort. There is great comfort in it, but it is also a path of pain and of difficulty. It is at, at times arduous. And yet, Jesus promises that just like his cross led to a redemption that nobody could foresee, so he will work through our pain and difficulty and the crosses we take up to renew us and to make us new. So consider the cost, and we don't want to be coy. But at the same time, do not forget the joy. Because there is great joy in the love of God in Christ for us. Because when we follow Jesus, we do not follow Jesus like slaves. That's the old identity. We, we follow Jesus as those who have been liberated by love, those who have been liberated by the unique God who in Christ denied himself, took up his own cross, and, and sought us out. And when that undeserved love lands upon your life, and when that liberation takes hold within you, then following Jesus, meaning listening to him and emulating him and obeying him and living in light of his mission, all of that becomes the joy of one who has been loved by an infinite kind of love. You will never find yourself more fully than when you find yourself found by the God who loves us infinitely. So consider the cost, but do not forget the joy. And then look at Jesus and let him ask you, who do you say that I am? 
And then with your eyes locked on his and seeing the God that you do not expect but that is more loving than you can possibly imagine, then deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.